This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at HuntworthGear.com. Now, we are heading into the July 4th weekend. If you have not taken your bow out of the case, do so immediately. Um, This podcast is uh, talking about just that, about bow maintenance about uh, things you can do that you should be doing um, to keep your bow in good condition, checking your strings, going over all that stuff um, so that the bow shop guy isn't overwhelmed uh, at the two days before season when you got your bow out and you said, oh my God, I think we need to do this. Uh, I think we need to change something, Um, all that stuff. Uh, We talk draw weights for hunting. We talk um, high end bows, mid range bows, price point bows, uh, difficult bows to work on, um, all the things, uh, that the questions that I had, uh, before I had a John, uh, to, to kind of walk me through and explain everything to me. Uh, our guest today, Derek Vaughn is named the wizard. Um, many, uh, previous podcast guests, uh, Derek works on their bows. Um, Derek's a great hunter. We talk about hunting, things to be doing this time of year. Um, some of his thoughts um, on his style of hunting, all that sort of thing. But um, this podcast, like I said, is uh, is for all you guys who are, you know, trying to figure out: Do I need a new bow? What's uh, is my bow too old? What's too old? What do I need? Uh, maybe I want to go down and draw weight, um, those types of things. Those are all things that we cover on this podcast. And, uh, it it was a good conversation. I think you guys are going to like it. Um, got to give a shout out, like I said, to all of our sponsors, Huntworth being one of them. Um, we're coming up, uh, going to be no podcast next week because of the holiday. 
Uh, July 4th falls on a Tuesday, so I won't be putting out an episode Tuesday. So, but we are going to be giving away that Black Hunter bow. Um, I'm going to get that ordered. I'm going to order one for, for the shop here and then uh, one to give away. We're going to get that out to Carl. He is going to uh, tune it up, do all of the, that fun stuff. And I'm thinking maybe we'll get on with like an Instagram live or something, um, talk through what he did to the bow, kind of the ins and outs of it, and uh, we'll announce our winner. Um, how do you win? Um, that's a great question. I'm, I'm still working on that, but we're, we'll we'll get to that with the next podcast. I will have uh, that announcement for you. Um, but we're going to be giving away one of those Black Hunter bows. Uh, we got tons and tons of giveaways uh, coming up uh, once we get back with the next podcast. Huntworth gives away uh, one of their packages, usually um, like a Shelton hoodie or uh, and some Durham pants or perhaps maybe some of their uh, early season gear. But I think that's probably what I'll push for. That's some of my favorite gear. Um latitudes giving away a set of their sticks again uh lucky buck with either the lucky buck or the seed and the bucks are going crazy for that down in missouri and uh in ohio as well um great stuff haven't got any pictures don't have any cameras out in the up i'm going to be getting up there in august um and kind of seeing how the the vitalized seed is coming along and seeing uh how everything is going uh on that front and uh set of arrows from zinger uh, and Kanadi, those guys, and uh, I got to get with Austin. We're going to be doing a podcast with him very shortly uh, with Genesis 3D. Um, but that hip pinch eliminator, um, you know that uh, that solo arrow quiver, um, lots of new products. I got to get a video made for uh, one of the other products that I'm super excited about. Keep I keep talking about it. Uh, not the new one that he's releasing. Go over to uh, Genesis 3D and check that one out. But uh, also, Spartan Forge has got, uh, they give away one of their uh, pro packages, so a year subscription to that. Um, imagery is great. <laughs> lots and lots of new stuff. If you're following along with the Mobile Hunters Expo, um, there was a lot of new features being show and told, uh, show and told uh, down there. Uh, so check out SpartanForge.ai. You can sign up there using code bowhunter and save 25%. That helps us out of the show. Uh, but all that stuff is stuff that we give away um, for our Patreons as well as uh, hopping onto the Marco Polo group. And if you're not in the Marco Polo group, um, I would definitely recommend heading over there. Um, just, uh, it was double duty, just got back from the property, um, getting ready to go up there for camping, but clearing everything out, uh, making some more improvements on our camp spot for the Patreon hunt. Uh, did some scouting, uh, you know, driving around, glassing, uh, looking around tonight on the way home, and uh, pretty, pretty excited for that. And uh, looking forward to the season. This podcast um, should get you ready, um, starting that thought process. Like Fourth of July weekend um, is what I'm told most people. That's where they make the switch to whitetail, and uh, you should definitely be doing that. Get your bows out. Go shoot more arrows. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Adam back with another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast. And um, I think every time I've talked to anybody that isn't from like our area um, about bows or bow tuning or anything like that, um, this guy's name comes up 
and uh, it's from the the hunting side. It's from the the bow tuning side. Uh, I believe uh, he's unofficially called the wizard. Um, it's uh, Derek Vaughn from Sunrise Archery. Uh, Going to be talking with him today about some hunting, about some uh, bow type things. Uh, but how are you doing tonight, Derek? Is that a pretty fair assessment? Uh, you got the gist of it. I'm doing good. How are you? Not too bad. It was we finally got some rain over here on the on the west side of the state, so um, people were uh, happy about that. I worked today and then uh, came home, had a little bit of time before the podcast, and uh, my daughter's like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I'm like, "Well, do you want to shoot your bow?" Uh, so we came down and uh, she's shooting her bow, and she said, uh, "This for anybody you know who has daughters or is like." has a young daughter and is like, Oh man, you know, for me, I knew I was going to have a daughter because of like all of the hunting and like masculine stuff. And it's like, Oh, am I going to have a tomboy? Am I going to push him into this hunting stuff? Um, today my daughter says, yeah, let's go uh, shoot our bows. Uh, I'm going to put my high heels on so I'm taller so I can see the target better. So, <laughs> so we, yeah. we definitely have not done that. So, yeah, I don't know how that goes. I have three daughters. So, I feel you there. Yeah. So I think, you know, for her, it's like, she just wants to be around. And, uh, while I was shooting, she found one of my releases. And so she's, she's on the shot trainer right now upstairs. She's like, can I bring this upstairs? And I'm like, uh, yeah, but I'm like, that's a two or $300 release. So just don't lose it. She's like, well, I don't want to break it. I'm like, you're not going to break it. I'm not worried about that. Just don't lose it. So that's all. <laughs> but, um, so w- w- why do all these people keep pointing me to you? Like, uh, what, what's so special about your shop and, and what you guys do over there? Oh, uh, well, I, I think, uh, the big thing for me personally is just the experience. You know, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, started in the late nineties, working on bows in a shop in Waterford, uh, called Katie outdoors actually right before I graduated high school. So I've been doing it basically my whole life. Um, I'm at I'm kind of a unique age in my early 40s where I've seen, I'm old enough to have seen a lot of those outdated bows, yet young enough to kind of keep up with the times and, you know, evolve as the bows have evolved over the years and stuff's going on. So um, I guess I'm just really well equipped to handle, you know, any situation when it comes to archery as far as setting up bows or working on stuff. Um, there's nothing that really surprises me a whole lot anymore when I see it. So I can usually figure out, you know, if there's an issue, how to fix it. Uh, you know, maybe what to recommend for a certain customer based on, you know, what I've seen in the past, stuff like that. Just, just a lot of experience, you know, and then we got a couple of good young guys at the shop, you know, that I was fortunate enough to hire the last few years. Um, they complement me well and they work well together, complement each other well, you know, well. So we just have a good mix, um, good mix of the shop. I mean, we're not real pushy, you know, we try to carry as many lines as we can. Um, if we believe in it and we believe they make a good product, we'll sell it, but we don't push it, you know, so nobody feels pressured to buy anything in the shop. Um, just just a really laid back atmosphere, and I think it makes people really comfortable, whether they're a beginner, never shot a bow in their life, or, you know, they're a pro for that, you know, for that standpoint. So uh, how did you get started or like what what is your um, hunting history and then how did that kind of move into working on bows and stuff? Well, my dad and grandfather hunted, you know, so I was around hunting from, you know, as young as I can remember, um, you know, started shooting a bow, I don't know, 
six to eight years old, somewhere in that time frame. Um, you know, and started hunting as soon as I could. Back then, you couldn't deer hunt until you were 12. They had an age limit back then. And I actually ended up killing my first buck with a bow opening day when I was 12 years old. So I kind of started right out of the gate, you know, having some success. Uh, just fell in love with it. I think around 15 or so, I, I kind of started doing my own thing as far as scouting and not just relying on my dad to put me on a spot all the time. Started, you know, Started reading sign, learning sign, hanging my own stands, doing my own study, that kind of stuff. And really from that year, had immediate success on my own and just kind of evolved from there. I guess I'd be remiss if I if I didn't ask you, uh, what was that bow? My first bow? Yep. I killed the deer. Was, uh, it was an XI Silverhawk in 1992. Okay. Was that a new bow or was that a, like an old hand-me-down? Uh, um, I think my dad bought it new, I believe. Honestly, don't even remember. I think it was a newer bow at that time. New-ish, at least. Let's just say that. It wasn't at that time. It was familiar now. So my 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 first year bow hunting was about the right about that same time. So I'm it would have been 93 when I was hunting uh, the first year. And my first bow was a, like a yard sale, actually like out of the classifieds. And I had my choice of an old PSE spirit or the, um, the, the bear whitetail too. So yeah. the one that still had the, the extra wheels and all the other stuff had the metal cables and stuff. Um, so that about the same era, but my bow was definitely not new. I think every one of my buddies said a dark trail master. And I think I was about the only one. My brother had a golden eagle sparrow hawk. My brother had a, a a golden eagle. I don't remember what it is. It's still hanging in my dad's uh, dad's shop. But uh, my other brother had a Darton thirty eight hundred. That was a uh, that was brand new, and I was so jealous because I was like, he got a new bow, you know, and he's two years younger than me. So, but how did you end up working on him? Like, did it start right there from the from the beginning, or did your dad do um, any of that stuff? Well, I think my dad kind of put the word in about me getting a job at the, at the shop there in the late nineties. Um, but that shop was a bigger fishing tackle bait shop than it was an archery shop. I mean, they, they did have an archery shop and it kind of grew once I got there. I mean, we had, you know, we had Matthews. That's when Matthews was making their first big push. So we sold a lot of Matthews bows out of there. We had a couple other lines, but you know, at first I didn't really work on them. They had some guys that, you know, were the techs there. And there was one guy in particular, his name was Eric, that kind of took me under his wing a little bit and started showing me stuff that, you know, maybe a couple of the other guys weren't, weren't doing because I think he knew that I had kind of a natural tape to it. was a quick learner and picked up on stuff. And, uh, you know, just started, work, you know, gradually started doing more. And, you know, within a year or so, I was, you know, probably one of their better Botex in there. Uh, Ended up being there for about five years, and you know, just kind of grew as grew as I went. You know, just learn. You just learn stuff. The more you work on it, the more you see stuff. Um, I guess I just had a um, just a natural instinct of what to do in certain situations to make stuff work, or you know, fix a certain issue. It's hard to describe. It's you know, some guys. You know, I've seen a lot of guys in shops. Some guys just have a natural instinct, and some guys you know, show them you know five or six times before you pick up on. So, 
at what point did you think that like, or did it end up being like, this was going to be your career? Oh, that's a tough question. Cause I bounced around. I was there. I actually worked in the box store, Gander mountains for a couple different Gander mountains for a while. Um, and then, you know, archery stuff there, we had it, but it was limited on what we could get, what we could sell and what we were able to do. Um, I actually got hired by a small pro shop over this side of the state. Um, it was a short stint. I was only there for about a year and a half, but I probably learned more in that year and a half because it was a small shop and I had a lot of time by myself to tinker and try stuff. And I was at the point where, you know, bows were starting to get more advanced. But I had some equipment that I, you know, that I was able to use that, that really helped me study and learn what changed, you know, you know, how much the let off would change if you did this, how much speed you'd gain if you did that, a lot, a lot of different things. And that's really, you know, when, the, when somebody ever first called me that, you know, what you called me earlier, the wizard, somebody kind of made a joke about it. And for a while, it was kind of just like a funny joke. And then after a while, um, honestly, I think more on the hunting side of it, it just kind of started sticking. So now I got shirts that my wife's made me, you know, the kids made me and that and everything. So. At this point, I guess it's stuck. So I was going to say to answer your question, though, I like kind of was you know rambling on there, but I went back to Gander after that small shop didn't really pan out, and I uh, was approached by a guy that was going to start the shop here where we're at now. Um, and he, you know, he said, you know, I'd like to start an archery shop, and he's like, I want you to be you worked on the stuff in the past, and you're good. People respect you in this area, so. He reached out to me to see if I'd be interested. And at the time, I was a manager, you know, at a, you know, a bigger company. Um, felt pretty secure there, you know, kind of thought maybe that could be my future there. You know, possibly had leads to be, you know, potentially a store manager someday. Um, so I felt like it was a big risk to leave a place like that to go to a pro shop. You know, end up having a meeting with him and his uncle, be two owners, and was just kind of blown away at their their vision for their archery shop and what they had in mind and decided that you know it sounded like it was going to be a lot more fun than what i was doing it was really what i like to do and just went for it and uh, you know kind of the rest is history you can say you know from that standpoint it's just been you know fantastic and you know i'll be honest to me at the time it had gander mountain was out of business in two years so you know, I thought I was taking a risk, but in reality, it was it was the real, really the right decision. So what I was going to say is you come at this from a, a really um, interesting standpoint um, on both sides of the coin. And obviously, I mean, I, I'm pretty, pretty objective, but I understand like that you you could be biased. Right. So I, I got to ask questions like uh, like the devil's advocate some in some ways. Um, so one of the things my father-in-law, he used to work at the, the shop here in town and like when Cabela's, I mean, and we see they're all different, um, magazines now, but it used to be that bit, right. When it first came out, it was that Cabela's super thick book. Right. And guys would go in there before there was Cabela's everywhere. It was, you know, kind of like a mail order thing. And they'd pick his brain. They'd go in there and they'd ask him all the questions and about all the equipment he'd take all the time. And then they'd go home and order it, you know, cause they'd get their Cabela's points or, or whatever. Um, and then the, 
the from the same perspective now today with the internet and all of this, you know, where you can go try and find it and things like that. What is the main difference from like a big box store to a, a little shop? Um, you know, cause it's supporting the little guy, supporting the person. And then at the same point, I mean, you, you know, gained this reputation working, uh, through different bow shops and then ended up in a big box store. Um, but you know, you can go to Dick Sporting Goods or you can go to Cabela's and you can buy a bow or you can have them, you know, somewhat set up your bows. Like what's your take on that experience? Like going into a place like that and buying a bow. Cause literally, um, I was just reading, uh, some horror story about some string stop being really messed up on a bow and, you know, it got locked open and exploded on a guy and it's like, Oh, yep. Cabela's adjusted my bow and, and all this stuff. So you, coming from that world into where you're at now and kind of bouncing around, like what's your take on that? It, it's tough. It's a tough call. You really gotta, I would be cautious going to a box store. I would, I would get to know the personnel before I trusted somebody at a place like that to work on your bows. Obviously, you know, I was there at one point. I, I knew what I was doing. We had a couple other guys there that were actually pretty good techs as well. Um, but I have seen a lot of really bad stuff come from places like that. You know, guys that just shouldn't be working on bows in general. Um, and I think, you know, I started again in Mountain and they had, you know, actually pretty substantial archery. We fletched arrows. We, we even crested arrows. I mean, literally painted arrows there, which, you know, hardly any shops even do anymore. So it was actually you know had a bow you know a tech area you know big county we had a lot of bows and we had two or three good guys but now you know as i was there over the years they they shrunk it they shrunk it they shrunk it and it became less service more get the sale get them out you know kind of mentality have you ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of food plot seed mixes out there well you are not alone and Vitalize Seed has developed a seed program that takes the guesswork out of food plotting. Vitalize Seed has two core mixes, the Nitro Boost and Carbon Load, to keep it simple. Nitro Boost is their spring-summer food plot mix, and Carbon Load is the fall plot mix, each having a diverse mix of over a dozen different seed types that are highly attractive to whitetail. Food plotting made simple, but it gets even better. Each mix provides necessary nutrients to the soil, making for better plots each season and saving you money by needing less roundup and less fertilizer each season. The one-two system simplifies your food plots just how nature intended. Vitalize Seed. Make biology work for you. Order now at vitalizeseed.com. Um, which is unfortunate because you really need that personal connection. You need to you need to understand and get to know the customer you're working with in the shop because there's drastically different needs from one customer to the next. One guy can just have a, you know, quick setup, get him out the door, and that's all he wants. Another guy needs hours, you know, set up, you know, understanding why, you know, why he's buying this, why he's buying this arrow. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuances and stuff that you have to know. And I don't know, the box store, though, I mean, there's good guys in box stores. There are. I mean, like I said, I was there. You just got to get to know them and, and, and trust them before you, you, you allow them to do it, I guess, if that's your only option. If you have the option to use a pro shop, you know, I generally would recommend going that route for, for a bow purchase for myself, but I wouldn't rule the box store out completely. 
And so the other part of that question kind of is like, how has, you know, in, in the last 20 years, um, the internet affected like your job and the industry and the customer themselves? Well, I mean, it, it, it helps and it hurts. I mean, it, it allows people to see stuff and get stuff that they can't get. Cause you know, we can't have everything. Um, it's just not possible. Now, I, I like to think we can order most things archery related, but I get there's a time restraint. You know, sometimes there's a price they can get a good deal on something online. I understand that. But, you know, if they do that, they got to understand if they need help with that item, they have to pay for the time to have it installed properly or leveled, or, you know, tuned, whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, it, I don't know. It's like I said, it's, it's some all shops fight, you know, because a lot of people do. They'll come in the shop, they'll look at three or four you know, handheld releases we got in the shop, they leave, and then the next time you see them, they got one of the releases you showed them, and you know, you they didn't buy it from you. So sometimes you just, you know, you just got to, the pill you got to swallow and move on and, you know, help them the best you can, knowing that they're going to come back if you were nice and helpful. And, yeah, do, like I said, do the best you can. The good thing is, you know, the bows are pretty protected. There's there's not a lot of bows, at least new bows. I am not high-class used. So uh, that's the one thing that, you know, some of the archery brands have tried to help us out a lot with is, you know, trying to protect the pro shops the best they can. Now, this may be a, um, a, a difficult question to answer. So I, I don't want you to like, you know, you you can, you can speak freely here. This is a a safe space. Right. But uh, with the internet and all that, and we'll, we'll, and you can feel however you want about this particular example, but like with the ranch fairy stuff and all that, like has the internet created these um, like know-it-alls that come into the shop and they tell you, what you're going to do and uh, have you seen more of that and how does that affect like your customer service? We'll call it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That, um, you know, right during COVID when I was in that, you know, ranch ferry stuff really took off and um, I think we sold more heavy broadheads and more heavy inserts and heavy arrow builds in that one year than we did in the previous six or seven years combined. And, um, you know, that lasted I don't know, a year, year and a half where it was real hot and heavy. And then it started, a lot of those guys started coming back a little bit, you know, kind of found a happy medium between where they used to be and, and there. Because, you know, there are some benefits, you know, we can go on and on about whether that's the right way to do it. Now, I'm not a big proponent of crazy heavy arrows. I used to shoot what was considered a fairly heavy arrow and now it's not, you know, so because of all that, so... I definitely am a proponent of a, a moderately heavy arrow, but not, not excessive. But yeah, for sure. I mean, archery talks, another one, you know, where everybody comes in and you know, they read something on them. It's like gospel, you know, you know there's no way fans or butts. That's, that's a fact, you know, they read on there that somebody else told them. So you just, you know, we're, we're pretty flexible. I'm never going to tell a guy, no, you know, if he wants me to build him an 800 grain arrow, I'm going to build him an 800 grain arrow. If he wants my opinion on what arrow he should, you know, hunt with, I'm not going to recommend him a hundred grain arrow for whitetail. I'm just not going to do it. But if that's what he wants to do, I will do. And then, how does that affect like your uh, tuning and all that stuff? Does it just create a lot more work for you? Um, like, what what guys want this 
you know, well, your example, 800 grain arrow. Well, well, what we saw a lot of were guys with price point bows, you know, the you know, that didn't have the tuning options that some of the higher end bows do wanting to build that kind of setup. And that did create some long, you know, some long tuning sessions at the shop, you know, you know, a bow that might have normally taken a half hour to tune, you know, and then I had to spend nine and a half, two hours on it. Just because it's there's there's a lot of variables when you put that much weight on the front of the arrow, you know, with a bow that you don't have a lot of tuning issues with, you know. So but I mean it's part of the job. It's what we're there for, you know, to problem solve and you know make people happy. And you know, sometimes it was fun, sometimes it was frustrating. You know, it just depends on the day and how many people were waiting to get, you know, waiting behind that person, you know. So I don't want this to necessarily be just about uh arrow building, but I think that it goes kind of um it could go hand in hand you could be um you could take it a completely different direction but um from from your perspective in and i want to talk about like how the bows have evolved and and things like that but for your average midwest hunter we're not going out west you know maybe we're maybe we'll take an out-of-state trip um, you know, maybe we shoot attack event or something like that, uh, for, for bow setups. And when you're getting ready and as now we're coming, you know, through, you know, uh, unfortunately I would say the majority of people, maybe you have a better uh, idea about this, you know, haven't even taken their bows out of their cases yet, or they're just starting to dust them off and say, oh, well, you know, it's 4th of July. Maybe it's time to start thinking about whitetails. Um, when you're setting up your bow or as far as components or, uh, you know, getting ready for the season, what are some of the like most underrated things that guys can do? And then the most overrated where people focus too heavily on. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a tough question. Um, like we just, the underrated part, I would say you just, you gotta start, you gotta start earlier. I mean, they're, they're, like you said, there's way too many guys that wait till September. Um, you know, we get guys come in middle of September, bow that needed strings two years ago, you know, and they want it done by October 1st. That's frustrating. Um, it's hard to say. Just start shooting early. Um, now, there's no better time than now, you know. We, we ran a special the whole month of June on, on strings and cables just to try to pre-mold that getting ready early try to beat the rush and to try to spread out the curve for us as far as the busy season and, and, and service that kind of stuff so i don't know and as far as overrated i don't know i don't know that you can ever work too much or worry too much about one thing but that, that's a tough question for me i, I really don't want to answer that to be honest with you. well I, I see guys that go into this like and uh, I don't want to like single anybody out, but that, you know, if they're not, if all their arrows aren't perfectly tuned, then they're just not going to hunt. Or if they're, you know, they're not, you know, th they have a bad day of shooting or something. It's like, well, you know, it's time to, you know, I saw something on uh, like a, a meme. I think uh, one of our Patreons, Brad put it out there, but it was a guy who said, you know, I got all my broadheads and field points hitting right where they're supposed to be at 60 yards time to mess with my bow. Right. 
like that it's never good enough. You got to keep tinkering, right? There are a lot of guys that do too much tinkering. That's for sure. I mean, they'll shoot one day and and shoot really well. The next time they go out, they're not shooting so good. So they want to change something. I would definitely avoid that because, you know, I think, you know, we're humans. We sometimes we just have a bad day. If you're starting to have a bad day, maybe just put the boat on, take a break, you know, wait till, wait till the next day when you're feeling better, shooting better. Um, I, I've been a victim of that myself. You know, once in a while, I won't shoot for a week, then I go to shoot and something doesn't quite seem right. So I'm quick to say something changed. And it's really just, I haven't shot in a while, you know, just, just be patient, stick to your form, you know, trust it. You've done it for a long time. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't want people to be afraid to try new things, you know, because there have been a lot of advancements. I mean, there's a lot of guys that get stuck in their ways with old equipment. You know, this is my release. I've used it for 25 years. If, you know, this is, I'm just used to it. Oh. The releases have gotten better, you know, arrows, you know, guys still want to shoot aluminum arrows. Well, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's better options. And, well, these things penetrate better than carbons. I mean, well, you know, I don't think. They do, you know, you can make a carbon that's heavier than aluminum if you want to. So, you know, there's there's just a lot of a lot of stuff like that. But the biggest thing is confidence. Whatever you're gonna do, be confident in it. You know, it's just kind of like fishing. I always use the you know comparison. You might be fishing with a buddy both using the same lure. One guy's catching the crap out of them, but the other guy's not catching anything because one guy's got all the confidence in the world in that bait, and the other guy doesn't. And that that's all it really boils down to. You talk about like the, the older equipment stuff. And, and that was one of the things on my list to talk about is like in the last 10 years or, mm-hmm. uh, and even you could go to like the last five or six years, like, what have you seen? And I, I understand that you're in the business of selling bows, but like, what have been like the major advancements? Um, what, what makes a, a bow today? better than a bow that was made 10 years ago or five years ago or two years ago, because there's these guys that just need to get a new bow. And, and I feel like those, the guys that are doing that aren't the price point bow guys. Like you're talking about, they're the, you know, high end bow, you know, got to have the flagship model every year. Um, but that aside, what are the, the major differences in say five and 10 years ago? Yeah, the, the biggest thing for me, you know, if you look at bows on paper from 10 years ago, like if you look at a spec sheet, axle, axle, the speed, the bracelet, when you look at the bows of today, nothing's really changed. They're all still shooting about the same speeds, similar size. They weigh about the same. But what they've done, you know, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is the efficiencies, how, you know, how smooth they draw, higher let offs. Um, less hand shock, less vibration, quieter, that kind of stuff. And then and the other thing is the the integration that's going on with these bows where they're becoming complete systems. Um, and I don't want to like keep tooting Matthews on specifically. You know, we're a big Matthews dealer. I like I like Matthews a lot, but there's a lot of other bows I like, but they're kind of at the forefront of that making the whole bow, you know, a system. You know, they got a site it fits that bow specifically. They got a rest that's made just for that bow. They've got a stabilizer that fits that bow, quiver that fits that bow. And guys like that stuff. They want stuff to match and all go together and fit well and look good. And, and they've done that. You know, Hoyt's done it. PSE's working. You know, they're all kind of doing following that and that kind of trend. So I think you know the smooth draws, the hand shock, the vibration. Um, and then the integration and fit and finish, you know, just as a system are the biggest things um, that have changed in the last five to 10 years, in my opinion. 
and, and so I think I know what you're talking about, but can you explain efficiency? Because I would think that like being efficient would lead to higher speeds, right? But we're, we're, we're kind of staying there. We can't, we can't break that wall and oh. maybe, maybe we shouldn't, but, but yeah. what does the efficiency mean? So basically if you're getting 350 on a bow now versus a bow that was getting 350, you know, 10 years ago, the bow getting 350 now probably has more let off and draws an easier draw cycle, you know, to get that same kind of number, if that makes sense. You're not having to put as much energy into it, easier to hold, easier to aim. Okay. Um, but some of the bows that were shooting 360, 370, some of the, you know, full throttles and stuff like that, the PSE had, they had, you know, really short valleys. They were tough to shoot. Uh, some guys really liked them because they had, you know, they liked that high holding weight. They pull in the water. A guy like myself that's more of a static shooter, I don't pull real hard through the back end of the shot. I just never have shot that way and never been comfortable shooting that way. That that kind of bow just eats me alive. I don't have a little bit of rally, you know, or let off is what I prefer. So So that's the million dollar question, right? You said, well, you know, some guys like it this way. I'm not that kind of shooter. Um, you know, uh in our groups um, we have guys that want to know, like, oh, what's the best bow out there? Like, what's the best bow at this price? What's the, what's the best? And, you know, in podcast land, you said you don't listen to very many podcasts, but every, like the, the very, uh, cliche answer, right. Is it situational. And so the very, uh, cliche answer is, well, you just got to go shoot them all. All right. Well, maybe your dealer does, doesn't have all of them. Maybe your buddy doesn't have all your buddies shoot Matthews and you can't afford a Matthew. So you're trying to figure out like, what's going to get me that. Um, so what do those different things mean? If, if you can't, if you can't shoot them all, um, but like the bows that have like a spongy back wall or, you know, string, string stops versus draw stops versus all that stuff. Like, can you tell us a little bit about like that? So if you're just reading a spec sheet, like what can you expect maybe out of some of these terms or whatever? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it is cliche, but you know, I always recommend unless somebody has a specific bow in mind when they come in the shop, if they come in and they say, you know, do you have X, Y, Z bow? Yeah. They shoot it. They like it. That's the bow I want to sell. Now, if they come in with an open mind and they give me a price point, you know, I have them shoot a bunch of different bows. Usually, I can tell right away what they kind of like in a bow, and I'll, you know, maybe I'll rule a couple out and give them a couple other options. But as far as the whole, you know, limb stop versus cable stop, you know, spongy wall, solid wall, um, that basically, you know, if you're if you're a more of a back tension type shooter, regardless of the style of release where you're pulling through the shot, you, you probably want a cable stop or something that has a little bit of gift to it because you need a little bit of movement um, to keep the pin steady, basically. Because if, you, if you're pulling hard against, say, a limb stop wall where there's no movement whatsoever, it's that rock hard wall, something has to give. So if you're pulling hard on that wall, usually the give is on your front arm in the pin movement. So more of a static shooter will like that rock hard wall, high let off, no movement. Um, whereas if it's somebody that's pulling through the shot, making a good strong shot, more like a tournament shooter, basically, um, you, know, you 
typically are always going to recommend cable stop low. It's down a little bit of give. Not not really a soft wall because none of none of the high end poles really have a soft wall. But something with a little bit of cushion. So when you're you're talking about let offs and efficiency and uh, some of this those types of things um you get into this kind of like weird spot now because we've got like 90 percent let off bows like these bows that are just you know you can hold them forever and then you kind of get to the question of like what is a good weight for deer like can i kill deer with 55 pounds is that enough you know you go to tack and you're trying to shoot you know, 140 yards with a 50 pound bow. Well, forget about it. Right. But practically for, for whitetails and, and kind of what, you know, what's our bread and butter, um, you know, what do you tell guys from that standpoint, as far as like, you know, draw weight for hunting? Uh, a lot of that depends on their draw length. So like for kids, you know, with short draw lengths, I try to push them to get to close to 40 as they can. But if you're, if you're dealing with a woman or an older guy that's got a you know, 29, 30 inch draw, that's a huge advantage over a kid with a you know 22, 23 inch draw. They could probably kill a deer with 30, 35 pounds. Um, you know, my wife shoots 45 ish pounds, and she's had pass throughs on a couple of mature bucks um, with fixed blade heads in the last three, four years. So I mean, 40s. I mean, with the newer technology is, you know, unless you're a really, really short draw, 40 is more than adequate to kill a deer. But if you have a longer draw, like I said, I mean, even less than that, you know, with the newer bows and how efficient they are and how good they shoot. And and so when guys are, are worried about shooting, you know, 50 pounds or anything like that, that's, you know, nothing, nothing to be worried, worried about. I tell people all the time, you can kill any animal in North America with 50 pounds. With the right arrow setup, right broadhead, I mean, you can kill an elk or a moose with 50 pounds. I mean, would I recommend shooting more? Absolutely. But if that's all you're capable of shooting, we get, you know, obviously the big question is, you know, am I going to have to go to a crossbow, you know, kind of thing, you know, when they start dipping poundage. You know, that's at their discretion, but, you know, 50 pounds is way more than enough to kill a whitetail. So from a, uh, a bow perspective and, you know, like, like some, some shop stories or whatever, like what's the worst bow that you've ever had to work on? Oh man. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, probably your old whitetail too, that you were you know, <laughs> debating about taking up back in the day. I mean, there's been a lot of really old stuff. I mean, anytime we see something like that, they're trying to put money or work into it. We always, you know, kind of lead with, hey, you know, this bowl will work, you know, it'll do the job, but, you know, the money you're going to put into it is more than it's worth, you know, and you may be better served putting that into whether it's a new price point bowl or something used or, you know, something more modern. I, I can't put it, you know, a specific one bow that was the worst, but anything that's, you know, especially pre-mid-90s, I would say, you know, at this point. Well, I'm just wondering from like the newer era of bows where like you get this bow and you're like, why, why do they do it this way? Why do I have to, 
Like, like when, oh, when, no. when this bow comes into the shop, because there's a, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I'll, okay. I'll say Oneidas in general. That's the one bow that I would say if it came in and it really needed an overhaul, I, you know, maybe the one bow that I would say, you know, and I might not be able to figure this one out just because of the type of presses needed and all, all, all the stuff you need to actually work on when I'm not super familiar with them. I've worked on several, done many strings over the years. We used to sell them in the shop I worked at, you know, plenty like that, sell the stove, so but that's, I guess, the one style bow or bow that I just want to see one come through the door. I kind of cringe. Is <laughs> anything wrong with them? You know, they draw nice. They, they do the job. I just, that's the one bow that I would say I'm definitely not an expert at working on. So that's just not in your wheelhouse as a, you know, it's not your favorite. Pretty much. So um, what is the deal with the, with the price point bows? Because, you know, a lot of them they shoot really good. The prices are there. They're not, you know, they're not winning any awards by, you know, social media or guys out there. I mean, like for me, the bow that, that I shoot and I've shot the, the platform for the last five to seven years, I think, but I'm shooting the carbon Zion right now. And for, for myself, like doing this podcast, like John has a, the v, V3X, like he got a V3X, he shot the the NTN, he had uh, whatever Bowtex like high-end bow was the before he got that one. And we could have had any bow that we wanted to. And like I shot that bow, it was comfortable for me. Um, it's light, it's easy for him to work on, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. And I wanted to kind of show guys that, you know, you don't have to have a, a – flagship bow or a new bow every year and my bow is a freaking tool like it's it's all rusty and i there's very little maintenance that i do do to it i'm probably the guy that you look at the bow and you go okay this is going to be a, a couple hours on the bench instead of a couple couple minutes but but it works for me and it's it's just a, a tool for me it's not it's not a, it's not winning any beauty contest right yeah i mean you definitely don't need the high-end bow to kill a deer no question about it. I mean, it's a luxury for sure. And that bow you have, that platform, you know, started with the Carbon Knight. Uh, probably, that's probably been like the second year we were there. So maybe nine years ago, they come out with the Carbon Knight, give or take. And then they evolved into the Carbon Icon and then the Zion. And I bet you we've sold, uh, that we've sold 500 to 1,000 of that platform uh, over the years with not not very many issues now when they tried to push that riser into a high-end cam we saw quite a few issues with you know riser twist and stuff like that when they tried to do that that carbon overdrive bow that didn't really work out that well but on that platform it's been it's been pretty rock solid i, I would say you know what separates that from like the high-end um, you know, if you want to compare it to other carbon bows, is that it's an injection, you know, like a moment riser, you know, an opponent into a moment, almost, almost kind of like a plastic type of carbon versus like a bike frame carbon, like PSU, PSE or Hoyt, you know, tubular carbon, that kind of thing. And then it just doesn't have a lot of options for tuning outside of moving the rest around, you know, which a lot of the newer bows, you can leave the rest down the middle tune elsewhere 
So that that would be the only other, I guess, drawback. You know, some of the components, you know, compared to the Hyundai Boza aren't as high, but you know, great, great bow for the money. And we, like I said, we've probably sold five hundred to the thousand or more in the last 10, nine, 10 years. But uh, so middle of the road or price point bows as a as a as a rule, it, it mm-hmm. would that be pretty standard? Just as like maybe a lack of tuning or just a little bit of old technology. I mean, what what what's really holding them back? It's it's the components, you know, you know, the limb pockets rather than a machine aluminum to super tight tolerance might be a you know a plastic Delron, you know, whatever injected product that you know has a little bit of you know loose tolerances. Um, just you know the tuning features. You know, most of them have you know your typical cable slide rather than you know, cable, whether it's a flex guard or roller guard, you name it. They just you know they skimp where they can. They still feel good. They shoot good. You know, if you look at the specs, like you said, they're, they're comparable with a lot of the high-end stuff. They might have a little bit more hand shock, a little bit more vibration. That's not the case with all of them. You know, some of the, you know, when you get into the really, the really price point bows, I'm talking more like the four or $500 range. You get the really spongy bowls on some of them. They just, and they're just, they're just cheaper in areas, um, in some critical areas, but it doesn't mean they won't get the job done. And what does that mean to the like end user? Like, I guess, is it, is it that much? I can tell you like, so that I've got a, a bear Alaskan and it's, it's different than the, the, the carbon Zion, but it it's really spongy. I mean, like super spongy. Like you can tell, like, that's a one thing. It's a great shooting bow. Um, I like the way that it draws. I like the draw cycle. I like all that stuff. That that sponginess is one thing I would would say about it. But to the end user, like, what is it? What does it matter if it feels good in your hand? Like, if like, I guess if you don't shoot that bow next to a phase four, yeah. does it does it really matter? Well, I, the feel in your hand is the most overrated aspect of all of archery. My, in archery sales, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it feels like when, when in your hand when it goes off. Where does the arrow go? So it's all about repeatability, you know. So if they can do the same thing over and over and over and over and not change, that's what you want, you know. And some of the price point bows that I'm talking about with the tolerance is over time. If there's a little bit of loose tolerance and then you know can shift in the pocket slightly over time, you know that could be an issue down the road. Not saying this happens; it's a possibility. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, the arrow goes where it's supposed to go. It doesn't matter what it came out of, you know. So, uh, in that scenario, how would a guy at home like notice that, or what would you see other than just saying, like, like we kind of led with saying, okay, well, maybe it was just a bad day. Maybe it was, you know, how do we know it was equipment failure? I mean, how often should you be? paper tuning your bows and and things like that i mean anytime something seems off it doesn't hurt to have it checked i mean whether that's once a month we get guys come in once a month want something looked at or once a year i mean i would at, at a minimum once a year i'd have your bow looked over um it doesn't cost anything for you know us to look at it i don't know about other shops but you know we're going to give you an opinion for nothing you know based on you know if you bring it in we're going to tell you what you need and we're going to charge you for that so 
but yeah, I mean, you look for signs of wear, you know, if you get an odd wear in a spot on your strain that you didn't used to get, or, you know, all of a sudden your cam looks like it's leaning more than it used to, or your limb, you know, maybe you're getting wear on one side of the limb, you can see where it's rubbing in the pocket, you know, any of that kind of stuff, um, anything that catches your eye out of the ordinary, you know, I would, I would bring in and have a look at and at least get an opinion on. And then, like I said, I am not the, uh, the bow maintenance guy. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the cringy guy that walks in when you see my bow. Um, what are some things that guys should be doing as far as like maintenance that would help them out, but then help you out tremendously? I mean, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, string wax, but don't overdo it. That's, it seems like guys either never wax their strings or they do it way too much. We get guys that come in with the, the bows just caked with wax end to end. They wax them in the, around the cams. You know, areas that don't need wax have wax, and, and that just encourages, you know, dust and dirt buildup in those areas that, that don't normally get it. So, you know, really, you know, depending on the conditions you're shooting in, if you're in real dry conditions, dusty, like the, when we're up at Total Archery, it was real dry and dusty up there. A lot of guys probably could benefit the wax of strings when they got done with that shoot. Um, but in general, I mean, I'm only waxing my strings, you know, two or three times a year tops, honestly, it's not that often, but you got to do it periodically. I don't like to do it right before I'm going to go to a shoot. And I don't like to do it right before I'm going to hunt because it actually adds weight to the strings and can actually change your impact point, you know, especially at the longer yardages. So usually if I'm going to do it, it's, you know, after I'm done with something, you know, after the season or I'm not going to shoot it for a while, like after tack, maybe I'm not going to shoot for a few weeks, I'll wax it. And then when I start shooting again, I'll, you know, put a new tape on it with a marrow or whatever I'm going to do. But that's the biggest thing. And then, you know, just obviously if you get dusty dirt all over your bow, you know, clean it off, you know, don't let that sit there and, you know, work its way into your cans, your axles, your own pockets, that kind of stuff. Just common sense stuff like that outside of, you know, the wax. I'm pretty sure you just said I don't have common sense, but um, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> no, no, I don't have any feelings. Um, but so what about your bow, like frozen into your bow case? Is that bad too? <laughs> yeah. If you get wet, you know, if you get a bow wet and you, you use a bow case, as soon as you can get it out of there, don't do not leave a bow in the case wet. That's a bad thing. And I think it happens probably far too often during the season. You know, you close the case after you've gone on, you know, hunt for a week, it drizzles on you, you open it up, everything's rusted, you know, that that's not a good thing. So definitely get your bow out, dry it off, let it air out, um, you know, during the season for sure. And with that, uh, string wax, like what is that doing? So, I mean, and, and how should people be uh, like applying it? You know, cause I, I, I think string maintenance and like strings in general are things that like, you know, are, uh, perplexing to guys because it's like, Oh, this string's a hundred bucks and this string's 200 bucks and string stretch and all this other stuff. Right. I mean, I guess depending on the material, there's probably different recommendations based on what kind of string material you're using. And I'm not a string builder, so I'm not going to go into detail on that. But the biggest thing is you don't want to you don't want it to dry rot, basically. And that's what happens. Like if the string gets wet in the rain and then dries and then wet and then dries, you know, they they start to basically dry rot and get you know start getting that real fuzzy look. That's what you want to avoid. And the wax you know, actually help, you know, prevent the rain from penetrating it, you know, almost like a, 
you know, makes the water more beat off it, kind of like a DWR treatment, if that makes sense. But so it just keeps the condition, you know, lubricated, you know, if that makes sense. And so when should guys replace their strings and with what? Well, that's somewhat of a loaded question because, you know, you got customer number one that shoots 20 arrows a year, you know, in September and then goes and hunts. And then you got, you know, customer number two that shoots 5,000 arrows a year, you know, and he's probably going to need strings every other year. And the other guy might be able to get five or six years out of the set, assuming he's, you know, waxing and taking care of him in the off season and that kind of stuff. So it's hard. And then every bow, every single bow is, is, is harder or, or less hard on a string. So it depends on what the bow is, uh, how much they shoot, how well they take care of it. But, you know, just in general, like if somebody asks us at the shop, you know, our typical answer is like two to four years. And again, it's one of those things where bring it in, let us look at it. We're going to, we're going to tell you whether we think you need it or not. As far as with what, I mean, we're, we're a huge uh, America's best bowstring dealer. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but uh, they're, they're our go-to brand for strings. We've actually been their biggest dealer in the country the last three years running. So had a lot of luck with them. Their customer service is phenomenal. We've never once had them say no. You know, if somebody ever has a question you know, or doesn't like something about a string, they're going to replace it, no questions asked. Uh, they have a good warranty. Uh, they stand by it. You know, if we can prove that it was bought within the time of that warranty, they're going to replace it. If there's an issue that they, they feel like uh, you know was the string's fault, so you know a lot of good stuff to say about those guys there. And so, when you're saying like if you're the guy that shoots you know 100 arrows a year or 5,000 arrows a year, and I mean uh, other than you know bringing it into a shop, but what are some signs that you could look? look at uh as your yourself when you're shooting saying okay well maybe maybe it's time for a new string you know you don't have a clicker out there every time you shoot an arrow you're like well i shoot a lot but i don't know if i need one or what usually you'll see serving separation or in in and around the cams is usually the first thing that, that i pick up on um you know that fuzziness if it's getting dry rotted you get that fuzzy look um, if it starts doing that too bad, once it gets to that point, you can wax it or hide it for a little bit. But usually it's there, you know, it's going to come right back. So you just start shooting for a while. But the biggest thing is, you know, inspect your servings, look around the cams, make sure there's not a big gap or, you know, separating or something's not cut. You know, if you see something hanging loose here, that's always a you know, red flag for sure. Um, and some people, you know, let's face it, they just don't really know what to look for or where to, where to look. So, you know, again, it's one of those things where, you know, bring it to a shop, let somebody knows what to look for, look at it. All right. Well, so I think that covered like most of the questions that I had on the bows. I'm going to take a look here real quick. Um, I, I guess for you, uh, what are your like favorite bows? I think that's the only th- other thing is like for like a budget bow, like obviously, um, you know, you got to go in, you got to shoot it. You got to see how it works for you. But like, what bows are you seeing guys have uh really good success with or, um, the, the budget bow price line. Yeah. Like on one of the price point bows and then maybe the higher end bow. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it sounds like maybe the Matthews is going to be your, your go-to, but well, regardless. Like for 
you know, like I'd say youth and women, you know, without on, on the price point side, I like the diamond stuff a lot. We sell missions, we have, you know, PSDs, we got some bears, but the diamond, especially like the Edge XT is a, a really good one that I like a lot for, for youth and women, especially youth that are growing because it's got a huge range and a lot of hosts have that huge range. I just, that one seems to be a little bit easier to get set up and, and tuned correctly. Um, in that mid range, um, the bow you have that carbon zion's been a great one for years uh, the hoyt torex uh, we sell a lot of those uh pse drive uh, bear's got a couple of that alaskan we, 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 we do pretty well with that and then they got another one called the legend xr that they launched this year it seems to be really nice so those i would say are probably in that mid-range are, are, are best ones um and then the high end i mean they're all they're all awesome bows we sell a ton of Matthews, uh, similar to AVB, where you know we're a huge Matthews shop. And you know, to be honest with you, more often than not, over the last ten years, I I end up not shooting one just because I shoot a different brand better. And that, whether that's a PSC or Botac or Hoyt, and you know, I've shot them all. You know, you know, got a prime right now that I like a lot. So there's a lot of good bows. Matthews is by far and away our number one seller. I think we've been the number one uh, Matthews dealer in the state two of the last three years. So, obviously, from a brand standpoint, I love them. They, they do great for the shop. Their accessories are great. Um, but I can't say that their bow any one year is better than you know anybody else's bow. Just they, they sell better. But that is a fact for us. So, in the last, I don't know, three years maybe it seems like we've seen this incredible jump in price. Like they used to be thousand dollar bows. Now you're looking at, you know, the expeditions or the, the carbon bows from PSE. You're looking in the 2000, you know, almost $2,000. Um, what, what justifies that? Or where is that like coming from uh, in a out of pocket? Most, you know, type most thing. of the, yeah, most of those are carbon. Now, the expedition, we're not a dealer of expedition. I've seen that bow. I know it's a, some sort of alloy that's you know lighter than aluminum, supposed to be stronger. I picked one up that I actually opened the tack, and they're definitely light. But they, uh, I don't, I don't really know about that particular bow, so I'm not really going to talk too much about that one. The carbon bows. Are basically the other ones that are way up there. Most of the aluminum flagship bows are still eleven or twelve hundred, so they've come up some. And there was definitely a spike from COVID with components and costs and materials and stuff like that. But the big thing with the carbon, um, I don't know. It's just different. You know, guys want to be different. It's lighter for the most part, especially PSCs are substantially lighter. Hoyts have come down and weighed a little bit. The last, you know, when they went from the five to the seven, they cut a bunch of weight. You know, Bowtech and Elite have carbon bows now, and they're all in that $1,600, $1,900 kind of price point. They're more rigid. They get they have a different feel to them. You know, they don't get cold. The PSE, in the case of the PSE, they're, they are substantially lighter. Um, I guess the thing I like about that is you, you can put um, – more, more weight in your stabilizers to, to influence the way that they aim, I guess, if that makes sense, rather than, you know, with, and still have a manageable bow weight. So I do like that. Um, 
but it's it is it's hard to justify the cost of them you know for your average your average bow hunter and we and most average bow hunters aren't buying those bows you know we sell we do do well with them but it's a small percentage of our sales that goes like that so uh from a guy who um it, it sounds like got your your nickname the wizard from from hunting more on the hunting side how does working in the shop affect your hunting and how do you like prioritize your time in the woods versus like your your job you know so i've prioritized hunting so that i've got a bunch of time off during the rut and during hunting season um but it seems like you know an an early velvet hunt or something like that is completely off the table for you um cuz that's when these guys are cracking their bow cases open and saying Derek I need your I need your help it, it, it's definitely very, very difficult to manage um cuz I would love to go out west hunting mostly because of work uh, I've got buddies that started hunting North Dakota last year the year before they had good success in September they invited me, you know, this year, and I don't think I can make it happen. Maybe someday. Um, but I, I do, you know, I used to golf a lot. I used to fish a lot. And I used to bow hunt a lot. And I got married, had kids. Bow hunting was the one thing that I wasn't going you know, to kind of give up. I basically gave up golfing and fishing for years and kind of getting back into golfing a little bit now that the kids are a little older. But don't fish nearly as much as I used to. But the bow hunting was always number one for me and was something that I was, you know, not going to give up. Uh, now I had to, you know, manage that time a little better. Uh, working in the shop, it's definitely tough. But basically every day I have off, for the most part, you know, I try to try to keep the wife and kids as happy as possible, but they know and they understand how much it means to me. Um, so, yeah, that end of October through the middle of November time frame for me, if I'm not at work, I'm usually in the tree. You know, and being the manager at the shop, you know, I've been doing it a long time. You know, pick and choose. Like I know historically when my best chances are going to be, and and try to try to pick those days and give the other guys some days off as well because they like to hunt too, of course. But but it's tough. It's real tough. And so, like, uh, how many days a year are we talking that you're in the stand? Because I mean, the, what the time frame that you gave there, um, you know, let's let, let's call it. October 20th through if we're talking, you know, bow hunting, we're talking till November 14th, you've only got a couple of weeks. And then you said, whenever I'm not working. So for a regular person, that's five days a week. And if you work in a bow shop, you know, maybe that's the weekend or maybe that's, you know, so, 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 so quantity of days, how is that stacking up for you? Um, I probably, you know, if you want to count the whole season, I probably hunt, uh, that's a tough, I got to think about this. I would say 25 or 30 days between October 1st and the end of the season. Okay. And so one half of the, of those, I was going to say half of those would be like between, I would say October 27th and November 14th. Okay. And what are you doing? to set your up for yourself up for success. So, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier prior to, to recording that you were um, hunting some 
some mostly private land and you've got some, some leases and stuff. Um, but how does that work out with, you know, the other guys that you're doing the leases with where I I don't want to say, you know, that your time is more valuable than anybody else's, but if you've only got, you know, so many days or so many opportunities, um, you know, what are you doing to, to prioritize? Because, you know, you're doing this at a very high level. As I said, you, you were recommended to me, not only from the bow side, but from, from the hunting side as well. Well, I mean, over the years, uh, I've been hunting the same farms in Michigan for the most part. We've, we've lost some and we've gained some, but for, this will be about year 14. I've been involved with this lease. So it's, uh, I'm really big on, historical movement like when where and why they move um, and it does change from year to year based on just whether there's a good deer in that air particular area or not but you know i use cameras a lot you know i've evolved from regular cameras where i'm you know, running 15 regular cameras to now you know more 50 50 between cell cams and regular cameras you know from about right now i was actually hanging cameras last Wednesday and I'm going to put more out today. Um, so right about mid to late June on, I try to keep really close attention to, you know, what deer are around, where they are. And if I know where they are based on history, I know kind of whether they're vulnerable and when they're vulnerable and what kind of conditions I need to go in after them. I've just had a lot of success because, like I said, my time is limited. So I have to be efficient with my time. And, you know, we were talking about the private and public stuff earlier. That's that's part of the reason I haven't really dabbled into the public is just because I don't have the time to afford to burn burn hunts. I don't have time to go sit and stand for you know a day and have three guys walk by and ruin a day of hunting. You know, I only get so many days, so I try to make them as efficient as I can. You know, in early October, if I have a day, I will, I guess, somewhat burn a hunt, you know, maybe to observe. I'm totally out of the game. I'm trying to learn something. But for the most part, you know, most of my success is pre-rut during the rut based on historical, historical data that I've learned over the years in certain areas. So, like, right now, when you're going out there and you're setting cameras and you're – um you know, using that, the time that you have right now, what are you focusing on? Like, what are, what are those cameras doing for you in mid October or, you know, early November? Well, I, right now I'm, I'm spreading them pretty thin, just kind of trying to take inventory. Uh, you know, there's a few specific deer that, I, you know, from last year that made it through that I'm going to be looking for to see if they're still around. But for the most part, I'm just trying to get a feel for what deer are around and where and where they are. Um, basically, compiling a hit list. Um, I usually have a summer hit list that you know that might be 15 deer. I have list of you know, three or good three and a half year olds or four and a half year olds or older in Michigan. Um, and then by the time October rolls around, usually that list is cut in half because they just disperse and they're just no longer around. So right now I'm just trying to make as big a list as possible. Um, 
and just and try to keep tabs on them from there. You know, if I start getting a lot of good deer in one area, I might put more cameras in an area just to try to hone in on them a little bit more, figure out what they're doing. But I haven't killed a lot of deer early. You know, I have killed a few good bucks. You know, I've killed a couple opening day, and then I, I have killed a couple pretty good ones right in the middle of October, like in the lull, 15th, 17th, right around that time frame. But for the most part, it's that last few days of October where I really, you know, key in on specific deer. And that, you know, as we get into that, you know, later part of the first week of November, second week of November, I'm more concentrated on uh, travel corridors, many areas, that kind of stuff where it's just historical rut movement, uh, not not necessarily targeting a specific deer, just knowing that there's enough good deer in there that, you know, you spend enough time there. So where are you placing these cameras at this time of year when you say that you're spreading them thin, like from like a, from like an inventory standpoint rather than like a, a kill type spot? Most, mostly food sources, edge of bean fields, you know, trails coming in and out of food, you know, that kind of stuff. I do have, I will put cell cams in areas that are deep knowing that I'm not going back in there just to kind of see, you know, what's going on deeper in areas. But for the most part, they're you know on edges, mostly edges of fields. Okay, and so how do you use that information? I know you said that you're compiling like these these hit lists, and then these deer disappear. So you've been on these same farms for you know over a decade. Um, are you? confident that this is just where the deer go when they're pressured or this is where um these deer go for lockdown or is it just you know like uh the community scrape type stuff uh because one of the things that you said was you know where the deer are vulnerable um so what does that mean like to you um well when i say vulnerable there's one specific farm in mind that uh, it has it's basically skinny cover and you know if and i know if, if there's a couple bucks or even one good buck using it uh and if i get you know a northwest wind i can hit this spot and if, they, and if he's there that day there's a pretty good chance he's gonna if he moves he's gonna come by you know, i happen to kill a deer three years in a row out of that same tree you know two of them were 140 inch deer in michigan so i mean that's it's 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 just proven over time that that it works. And then you know, the last three years, I haven't killed a deer. You know, so it's just kind of one of those things where, and and basically didn't have deer really using it the last three years. Deer's deer there, but not not the deer I wanted to target. So it's just knowing that you know if there is a shooter in that spot in that area, you know, based on history, um, you know, if I get the conditions right, there's a decent chance, you know. Long assuming I can get home from that day when the conditions are right, that I can you know get a crack out. So, um, like you said, you, you're you're not much of a podcast listener, so I'll let you know that I'm the world's worst bow hunter, and that's the that's the that's the way that it it works out for me. And I've never like I I can think back on days that I've like killed deer or that I've like capitalized or some of the days where I've really seen a lot of deer and, but I don't look at like the weather and say, okay, here's a cold front. I need a day off. I earlier in my career, I would say, 
I just need to be in the woods every day. Um, now I'm looking more at looking at the winds and things like that. But when you talk about uh, cold fronts or when the weather's right or, or whatever outside of the, just the wind direction, like what are the days that you're saying, okay, I have to be in the woods when this is the scenario. I think a, a cold front, any of the last 10 days of October, if you can, if you can get woods that day, that's, that's huge. Um, to 2021 was a clear-cut cold front coming and it was hitting on a friday and it was a day that i had scheduled to work and i saw it coming and i talked to the guys we made arrangements i think it was the 22nd or 23rd of october and i ended up getting the day off and i had bucks hitting a scrape in daylight fairly frequently and i knew that if i could get there i had a good crack and sure enough I got in there and killed, you know, my target buck the first morning in that spot that year on the first cold front late October. So that's a big one. Uh, Northwest winds. I got a couple spots that, you know, if you get a Northwest wind accompanied with a cold front that I always like to give a sit and that I usually see, you know, good activity. I don't know. It, it, it just varies. You can't, you know, the whole month of October, it's basically cold fronts. In November for me, it's more about, I guess, winds and pressure. I like high pressure. You know, I'll, I'll get way more aggressive if it's high pressure, cold, cold temperatures. You know, you know, bluebird skies, knowing that those thermals are going to be picking up, and you really don't have to worry too much about your scent. You know, I'll crash into some areas. You know, on marginal winds and stuff like that, um, where I wouldn't typically do it earlier in the season. Um, so just you know. Stuff I've you know learned over the years. I think the biggest thing I've changed in the last you know six or seven years is paying attention to access um, a lot more. You know, it's one thing to be have the right wind for the tree you're in, but you got to get there. You know, so it's all about it's all about how you get there and what you spook on the way in and all. There's some spots that I won't even go to unless there's a ten or fifteen mile an hour wind you know, for an afternoon set because you just can't get there because it's it's one of those, another one of those skinny cover type spots where, you know, you just alert everything in the area that you're there. So a lot of, a lot of different things I look for and think about every time I go in. So on those, uh, you, you had mentioned that the, you were getting the trail cam pictures of these bucks, uh, daylighting on the scrapes. Um, other th like, so that's, let's say that that same cold front's coming in and you're, you've got areas that have uh, good deer in there, uh, but you don't have the trail cam pictures. Would you still be setting up on a, that same scrape or are there other like terrain features or other things like that time of year that you like to um, target as well? Oh, there, there's a lot of areas I don't have cameras, you know, cause I got a lot of ground. So, I mean, I'm not going to, if I got a camera not, now, historically, I don't put cameras like right over sets. This that one set was an exception because I leave a cell cam on a on a uh, solar panel year round, so the camera's there year round, and I think the deer are just accustomed to it because it's been there for two years now. But anyway, um, if I didn't have bucks coming to that scrape, I would not have went to that spot that day. I would have found it, you know another spot. I would have gone somewhere else that historically has been good over the years, but I definitely. You know, if I had a camera there not giving me any intel, I probably wouldn't have went to that exact spot. Well, I guess I'm trying to like 
parse it out for like the listener for myself. Like, so if I, I don't hunt cold fronts, right. But so this year I say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take what Derek said. And, you know, I've heard a lot of other guys talk about like, oh, you got to be in the woods, but being in the woods and being in the right spot are two completely different things. So what to you is like a good spot on a, on a cold front? It depends on the time of year. You know, first half of October, I'd say get on a food source because the deer are going to be on their feet feeding earlier. Um, and even into later October too, but I try to key more in on, I'm looking for specific bucks and I try to get in the core areas and get aggressive. I do a lot more calling in late October, uh, especially grunting. Um, I've grown a lot of bucks in the last week of October. So I try to get as close as to I as close as I can to where I think the, my target buck is in his core area without you know busting him out of there that time of year and just get aggressive. Um, and then you know late season, same thing. You know you get back on food when you have to start talking December. You know November, middle of November during the rut, it's it's all about travel corridors and you know just putting the odds in your favor down inside of bedding, travel corridors between bedding. Just about being in the woods in general. That, you know, for me, it's you know early. It would be food, then later it's more on you know, specific buck. Just getting close, just knowing that because it's a cold frame, it's probably more apt to be up on his feet for longer periods of time. So for myself, I think I've seen more like success, more deer. I'm more confident, like during the rut. Just and I, I feel like uh, it's it's kind of funny. Cause I feel like, you know, it's one of those things where anybody can get lucky during the rut. So that that's why I've been successful then. Um, but it's like, you just get downwind of, of doe bedding. Right. And you know, there's going to, going to be deer, find the does. If you can find the does, there's going to be bucks, you know, somewhere around there. Um, and this past year, it was like very unpredictable. Like there was, there was more bucks than there were does and there was just bucks running around everywhere, but they didn't, they weren't, predictable right they were just everywhere just trying to get on these these does how does that change for you in that that pre-rut time frame where it isn't like going crazy the 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 calling is obviously working for you but are you still on the downwind side of bedding are you trying to look for buck bedding are you just on travel corridor you know that's where i think for for the guys that are trying to to improve as hunters or to, to level up, it, it becomes really, really tricky because your mind's telling you, well, you should be here. Well, you saw them over there, but there's tracks here. You know, that, that's where it gets difficult. So yeah, I'm more, I'm more focused on where I think the bucks are bedded in the pre-rut, but I don't necessarily go downwind of it because they're smart. You know, the bucks I'm hunting are, or at least most of them, I think, are smart. They're probably not going to walk out the downwind side of their bedding area, you know. So I try to, I try to use structure or edges or some sort of uh, terrain feature that forces them, you know, to not walk in a straight line where you can kind of get on a, you know, a half off wind or a crosswind, where you know you're cutting, you're making the wind seem like it's in their favor, but it's not kind of thing. So it's hard to describe, but. I wouldn't just go downwind of buck bedding areas. I don't think that's going to be a you know, super successful. Like I said, because I just don't think they're going to leave that way. They're going to they're going to leave with the wind in their face if they can. Now, obviously, you know, I've had this discussion with buddies before about you know 
if you get a predominant wind and it sticks for three, four days in a row, a deer's not going to walk in the same direction for four days in a row. It's just not possible. So at some point they got to walk with the wind, you know, they're not always going to have the wind in their favor, but generally when they're leaving a bed to come out and start, you know, patrolling their area or go hit a food source, they're going to try to get the wind in their favor as much as they can. So I just try to use, like I said, whether it's a down tree, a pond, something that forces them to make a move um, on that route, you know, to, to put that in my favor. So, so yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I, I think about that more, I, I guess I don't really ever think about that from a, um, from what I'm, when I'm normally hunting, I, I've, I've heard, uh, like that's what the stick bow guys use, right. For, for any deer is, you know, they can't, they can't shoot 30, 40 yards, so they can't cover more than one trail. So they get to an area where the deer comes out and it has to go around this deadfall. It has to go around. So it's just, they're hunting like these micro pinches so that they're right there for a, you know, inside of a 20 yard, 15 yard shot. And so what you're saying is that you're just getting like where the buck's going to exit. And this is kind of where you hear like the Dan infaults and those guys talk about, you know, getting super aggressive and getting just off wind where, you know, if that deer gets past that shooting lane or it makes it around that pond, well, now you're busted because your wind is there. You got kind of got to kill them right where they're, where they're uh, adjusting their, their movement. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it, it can cost you too. I'm sure, you know, and a lot of times you don't know. I mean, if you're on an off wind and it, it swirls whatsoever and they get you and go out the other side, and they don't, you know, they don't always blow at you. So you don't know, you know, I probably get, you know, get had more often than I, I'd like to think, but it's worked. And, you know, like you said, the micro pinches and micro reroutes and stuff like that, I guess that, you know, that is something that I noticed that, you know, when I'm scouting with other people that I'm always, you know, they don't really think about usually until I point it out. You know, you see that down tree right there, look at that trail, the way it cuts around it, you know, there's a, there's a spot where you might be able to take advantage of them and, you know, just stuff like that. I mean, there, and there's, I got good buddies that they're very successful. And, and when we scout, we're on to- two totally different wavelengths. I mean, I don't understand what they're looking at. They got the same token. They're, they're not really picking up on what I'm laying down either. So there's more than one way to go about it for sure. But it, that, that kind of stuff's worked for me. So when you were talking about, um, you know, the discussion with your buddies and saying that deer aren't going to leave their bed the same way, uh, you know, for three, four days in a row. Um, where does that put you as far as like, so you know that there's a deer in the area, maybe you've got, um, you know, maybe you've been hunting and you've, you've still got cell cam pictures of them after dark or, you know, coming back to bed or, or any of that stuff or, or dog and does or whatever. So, you know, he's still in the area, uh, that you haven't blown him out. Where are you at with sitting the same area, the same tree, the same set, um, multiple days in a row? Um, I try to avoid that at all costs other than like in November, I will, if I'm on, if I'm on really good movement and there, there's a lot of does in that area. And I know there's a couple of good bucks. I feel like it's a matter of time unless, you know, if I sense that I'm seeing less and less deer every time, I'll give it a rest. But if I'm on deer and it's hot and heavy and I, you know, I got the right conditions to go back in there, I will in November. 
in October, I, I bounce around as much as I can, um, basically taking shots at, you know, multiple different deer. Because you know, it's rare that I, it's rare that I see a deer that I'm after that I'm not in the right spot. I guess if that makes sense, it seems like when I get a, a good encounter with one, more often than not, I, I I'm successful with it. But um, if it doesn't work, you know, usually I'm on to the next deer, the next hunt, basically. Or you know, I'll go back after that one a week later, or five days later, or whatever it might be, and try it again, or a little bit different setup on the other side of the same bedding area or whatever it might be. But I like to bounce around a lot in, the, in October for sure. So it sounds like you've got um, a, a bunch of spots to hunt, a bunch of area, a bunch of uh, options. Um, but like I said, I'm not familiar with that style of um, hunting on private land. Like, do you think that there's any um, – downfalls to the way that you're doing it or things that are the uh, uh, difficulties that you face that maybe somebody that hunts public or something that doesn't, you know, um, maybe has a misconception of, uh, you know, just how easy it is on, on private. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't have the private all of myself. You know, I'm not saying it's public, but I am hunting with 10 other guys basically. So, you know, we have a lot of grounds, but there there is other pressure. Um, I don't know that there's a downfall to what I do. You know, um, the way I hunt, I don't like I said. I usually don't get super aggressive until it's time to get aggressive. So I don't feel like I put a ton of pressure on areas and hurt anybody else's hunts. You know, really the way I hunt. Um, I don't know. I don't. I guess I'm not sure on that. Uh, I know that. Uh, I don't. Know. I guess I don't think there's a downfall in the way I hunt. I wish I could, you know, visually see the deer more early. Like if I had more time off to glass from a distance and really pinpoint them early, I guess I wish I could do that more. But I don't know. I'm sure I affect the deer more, than, like I said earlier, more than I think I do. Um, but everybody does, I think. So you talked uh, kind of when we started this about uh – shooting uh, a buck on like your first first year hunting with a bow and then you know it wasn't long after that before you said you started really starting to figure out the deer um and and all of that at what point or, or was there like a a deer um that you either saw or that you killed that uh, kind of made you turn the corner for like going after like age class, like three, four year old bucks. Uh, yeah, sort of. And when I, when I started hunting, I mean, there was, there wasn't talk of, you know, shooter bucks. It was a buck was a shooter, you know, growing up. So I shot a lot of bucks, a lot of young bucks growing up, but I think it, you know, it gave me that, that killer instinct, you know, made me um, better in those situations. You know, I see a lot of customers and a lot of young hunters nowadays that, you know, they're passing bucks, passing bucks, never shot a buck or waiting for a big one, you know, and then they finally get that first opportunity and, you know, they're not ready for it because they haven't ever done it before. So I think there's something to be said about getting some kills under your belt. Um, but right around, I think I was 20 or 21 and I had killed, I don't know, six or eight years in a row, I had killed a buck at least, if not two with a bow. 
it just got to the point where, you know, I, I just wanted to start challenging myself to try to, you know, try to kill my severe and just so happened that opening day that particular year, uh, I was on a spot that I'd never hunted before. It was in kind of an old dried up marsh and I was only maybe 10, 11 feet off the ground because it was all the cover allowed me to get. And uh, not, I wasn't in a tree a half hour and here come two bucks. And historically, you know, the bigger the two, you know, it wasn't, it was still probably a year and a half old, maybe a two year old, but it was a seven pointer. Historically, I would have shot that deer and I would have been ecstatic and, you know, and moved on from there. And I, you know, told myself, you know, you're going to let these, you know, let this deer go and, you know, you're going to wait for something bigger. Let them go. They came right by five yards, walked by, they left. Uh, half hour, 45 minutes later, I looked to my left and the biggest buck I'd ever gotten a crack at was standing at 35 yards and moving through the shooting lane and I drew back he got to the second shooting lane and I freaking smoked them and kind of the rest was history you know it was all lesson in one hunt you know I could have shot a buck you know half hour 45 minutes earlier and ended up letting him walk and was rewarded with a bigger one so at the time you know it was my biggest buck it was like a 115 inch three-year-old eight point it wasn't nothing spectacular for me at the time it was because I was so used to you know, just shooting a seven-pointer or a five-pointer or whatever came by, and, you know, that kind of opened my eyes. And from then, I started getting a lot more selective and didn't shoot as many deer for a few years um, until I started, you know, 2005, 2006, I started hunting out of state a little, a little bit. And then in 2009 is when I picked up the area I'm at in, uh, in Michigan and have, you know, been pretty successful since that time frame. So, um, prior to that hunt, prior to that sit, prior to that kill, had you had encounters with bigger bucks or older age class bucks and it just didn't work out or was that the first, like kind of all came to fruition? Uh, I had seen a few, not very many though. I mean, not a lot. I mean, I was basically a kid, you know, growing up. I was at that time I was 21, but I'm still kind of a kid. Uh, I had seen a few for sure. I had some buddies that had shot some nice bucks, but I hadn't, you know, I think I had one good buck win me maybe when I was 16 or 17. You know, he winned me before I even saw him blue and took off. I saw a big rack running away. I'll never forget that. That was the first like gut, gut punch I ever took hunting. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't really had a lot of encounters with, with good deer, to be honest with you, until, until then. And then I kind of just slowly evolved from there to, you know, I've shot, you know, quite a few good deer, like I said, now, but yeah, it was almost like, uh, just an overnight change for me, just the whole mentality. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the difference in, in, in one of the things for me this year, like I, I'm not much of a, a goal setter. I'll say, okay, this is what I want to do. Or, but when it comes down to it, I, I think it's probably that I don't put in enough work. You know, I put in the sits, but I, I'm just not like finding the deer and like targeting a deer, uh, because I really do. Um, you know, and obviously hunting public is, um, a, a different, uh, animal somewhat, so to speak, but I like being surprised, you know? And I think the, you can, 
put out trail cameras and be like, okay, I thought there would be deer here or whatever. But I mean, I know it doesn't matter if it's public, private, whatever. We've all had the experience where you go in and you look and you say, this looks like a spot where I could kill a buck or there's going to be deer and the, the validation of when it happens, right? Like probably the, the, the same scenario that you had when that other big buck popped out and you were like, I was right. You know, that, that, that whole, um, you know, satisfaction of like, of being, uh, being correct there. But that same thing is like kind of what you had alluded to before is I feel like a lot of guys and, and myself included, like if you're not shooting your bow a lot and you're not putting yourself in these situations and even getting drawn back on deer or whatever, um, you end up with that, that, first shot either being a miss or you make a bad shot on them. And then after that, from the, as the season progresses, you're saying like, you know, don't mess it up instead of saying, you know, Oh, you're, you're dead. You know, um, there's a, there's a lot of mental stuff that, that goes into it. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of guys have maybe too much confidence going into it. Like the, the young guys, like where, you know, I'm going to hold off for a 140 and you're, you know, hunting Northern Michigan or wherever, where it's, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of them running around. And if they are everybody else and their brothers hunting them too. Right. So I, I think that that's, that's a, a really good uh, hunt, you know, for, for like a, you get the satisfaction and you get, you know, validation all in one, like fell swoop, you know? There's no better feeling than being rewarded on, you know, all the work you put in. And, you know, but, uh, I don't know. That's what keeps keeps me coming back is that feeling when it pays off for sure. Well, and I, I think we, I think one of the things that I, you know, we probably say it on here too much, but I think guys, I think what I love about, about archery and, and bow hunting is like can be summed up when, when guys say like, Oh, I, I, even those, even those two deer that you let walk by at, at five yards, you know, you said, well, I could have killed them. Well, there's lots of things that can go wrong between, you know, drawing your bow and, and, you know, the grip and grin. Right. Um, so, so many times the guys say, well, you know, I just, I could have smoked this one this morning. Well, we've all been in that scenario where it was absolutely perfect and we forgot to move our pin or the arrow fell off the rest or we hit a branch or, or all of those things. And to me, that's, that's the ultimate. That's why I love the, the archery hunting versus rifle hunting or anything like that is because, you know, we can, we can think it would have went, went perfectly, but it's uh, everything changes once, once that arrow gets, gets released. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I get buddies that tell me they passed this deer. I'm like, oh, yeah, how far? It's like, oh, 50 yards. I'm like, you didn't pass them. You didn't have a good opportunity. I mean, you didn't really pass them. You know, there's so many variables. Yeah, it's uh, – yeah, I've had a couple encounters where you think they're slammed on side buck a couple years ago at 22 yards, drew back, put the pin right behind the shoulder, let it rip, and then two feet over his back. And it dawned on me about five minutes later that my sight was at 59 yards, you know, so – it just, you know, stuff like that happens and you can never anticipate it. And that shit, even something like that, where I, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, I made a good shot. Just had the sight in set. You know, we got bumped when I was walking in because it's a slider sight. Uh, but it shot my confidence. I was down in the dumps. I was wondering if I could still, you know, thoughts start going through your mind. Can I do this? You know, is everything okay? You know, is that, was that the end for you? You know, there's a lot of, th- a lot of thought that goes in there. And then, you know, until you kill the next one, um, and then, then it's back, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's a, it's a, it's all about confidence and nothing, nothing leaves them more confidence than success for sure. So, and we can wrap this up here, uh, pretty soon, but, uh, one of the things that you said when you were talking about, um, you know, going out there and, and, and hunting with confidence for, you know, that, um, uh, 17 year old, 18 year old Derek. And, uh, you know, for, for a guy who maybe didn't have the, the property that you had to hunt, like what, what were you drawing on from that confidence in those early years? Um, I, just my scouting and you know, the sign I saw and I, you know, I knew I could, I've always, like I said, kind of had natural instincts in the woods when I had an opportunity, I always made most on them. And, you know, I always was able to set my expectations based on where I was hunting. So when I didn't have the, the ground I have now, you know, I would have been happy with, you know, a nice eight point, you know, any eight point was a nice buck, you know. So you just got to be confident in what you see and trust it and, you know, set your expectations accordingly. And if you're not hunting there, you have big bucks, don't expect to kill a big buck. You know, if I if I was hunting the UP, I'd be happy to kill a hundred inch buck. You know, I'd be ecstatic. Down here where I hunt in southern Michigan, I'm letting 120 inch deer go by. So it's it's just it's all about setting expectations, trusting what you know and what what, what you've done, and you know, going with it. and being happy whether you know whether you're successful or not, really. And I think it sounds like you're you're almost talking about like from a hunting standpoint, like building a portfolio, right? Like your, 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 your resume doesn't start with, you know, the, the job you have right now. Like you didn't just luck into this manager job or running, running a a pro shop. Like you had to be the guy that was painting arrows. You had to be the guy that was sitting there watching and doing all that stuff. And, and that applies to the hunting side too, is like, you don't just go out and kill one forties, one fifties, consistently yeah. without you know killing anything up 100%. to that point <laughs> yeah it goes hand in hand you can't just jump right in and go right to the top in either in either uh realm whether it's hunting or you know your work industry whatever you're doing you got to work your way up and you know like i said before you know there's a lot of young guys especially that feel like they're going to jump right to the top and, you know shoot a boon or every year you know right out of the get it just doesn't happen like that you know you got to you got to get some kills on your belt, learn, learn the you know, the habits of the deer, why they do what they do. You know, learn when, what you can get away with in the tree, what you can't get away with. There's so many things you can learn, you know, even with spikes, you know, does, you name it. I mean, so many things you can learn, that, you know, harvesting them out. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but it, it definitely helps. Oh, for sure. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not telling everybody to go out and whack two spikes every year. You know, I just, like, you got to start somewhere, you know. Well, and I think you, you have to even start before that and, and put in the work to f- find a deer, any deer 
Um, and I think that that's where, uh, that, that's certainly where I need to, um, improve on is not just putting all my eggs in one basket over here and then saying, well, I know there's deer over there and then having the same expectations. Like, you know, when you say that you start with, you know, 15 or 20 bucks and then they narrow them down or even more than that, you know, that I think that that kind of puts it in perspective, um, as far as how you kind of narrow it down and get to that point. It, it doesn't just, you know, it's not like, well, I got this piece of private and I, it, we, we have this discussion lots of times. Like, would you rather be the guy that has an entire basement full of one fifties, but you only hunt the same stand, the same bean field every year. And you know, like between this date and this date, one's going to walk out and you just shoot them, but you couldn't go kill a spike on public ground to save your life. Or would you rather have half the deer and a third of the inches, but be able to kill a deer wherever you walked on, you know, and it's like, you got to be able to have some, some skills. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of relativity in hunting. I mean, you're only as good as the place you can hunt. I mean, that's a fact. You can kill a big deer if they're on big deer there. And guys like yourself that are on public, I have a lot of respect for guys that can consistently kill deer on public. I've never even tried it. I'm intimidated by it. It's just not me. Now, maybe someday I'll get to the point where I have to do that. But right now, it's just it's hard to do when I have you know places to hunt that I do have to hunt. And it's different, you know, like you were saying, I'm not shooting a deer in the same tree every year after year after year. So every year it's a little bit different for the most part. But I definitely have a lot of respect for those guys that hunt those you know, public land, especially. Yeah, it's, it's a ton of fun. I mean, I can, I, I can tell you that it's, it's equally frustrating. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it's, it's very fulfilling. And I think, I think for me, it's, it's, it's the getting out there and learning and, and doing all of that sort of, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I also don't, I don't hunt for the look at me, look at me type. Gotta, uh, I would say probably hunting maybe does somewhat define me. Like I, I would define myself as a hunter, but the deer that I kill or the, the amount of inches don't make the person that I am. And I think a lot of people try and hang their hat on like they have to do this. Otherwise they're a failure or, or, or whatever. And, and like I said before, like goals are great and, and stuff like that, but you know, I don't identify with the deer that I kill. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of there too. I, I've gotten to the point, I kind of crossed the bridge maybe five years ago where I no longer felt like I need to kill a deer. Um, like I, I don't feel like I have to kill a deer to, to, to be that guy anymore. I'm almost more proud of what I don't shoot than what I do shoot anymore. As much as I love, you know, texting 50 of my buddies when I kill one, I mean, it's almost just as cool to, to send them a video. Hey, check this buck out there on that walk, you know? Um, so it's, it, it, it's kind of, uh, it was an interesting, interesting transition. I feel like I went through about five years ago when I just didn't feel like I had to kill one to make, to jump, to validate myself anymore. And 
I think it made me a better hunter, honestly. Well, I think it makes you, um, I think more appreciative, you know, and, and you're not like pressing as I feel like the more pressure that whether, I mean, and I, I, I've not shot like any competitive archery or anything like that, but I think with anything, like the more pressure you put on yourself, like, Oh, I have to do this. I have to do this. Kind of like what we were talking about with the deer, like, you know, the difference between like being like, so calm being like, this deer is going to die and being like, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Like it's a lot more peaceful and a lot more, you know, you're able to appreciate the the time more put pressure on yourself it makes it not as much fun for sure it makes it feel like work yeah and i i think i think it's interesting for for guys that like us and uh you know your work at the bow shop you've only got so many um so many days to hunt like it would it kind of seem ridiculous that you would pass deer like that because you only have so much time. And then for guys that do uh, a hunting show or have like a, a, a platform or a podcast or whatever, like you would think that the pressure is like, Oh, we have to kill something, but it's not why we're doing it. We're, it's, it's a, first of all, like we're doing it for ourselves and because it's what we love to do, not for what anybody else thinks. And I think a lot of people miss that. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. It's, for me, it's just, I, I just don't feel like, killing another 120 inch deer and not saying I won't shoot another 120 inch deer, you know, some 120 inch deer might be a five-year-old. You just never know. I might be a bear. I probably want to target, but I just don't feel like, um, I just don't need the validation of stacking more of those versus giving them a chance to get a year older. And maybe they're 140 next year at this point it means more to me than, you know, taking that particular deer. Like I said, I just don't feel like I need that, you know, you know, raw, raw moment to 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 send them on. You know, right? So, so what's next for you? Like, I mean, what are uh, you, you're kind of how long is it going to be until you can hunt out of state, or you can say, "All right, I'm I'm going to have to leave the shop uh, to, to to go on that elk hunt or or to do something like that." Uh, well, I bought my first Colorado preference point this year, so it's on the radar. I'd like to do that in the next five years, Colorado, or unless something else better opportunity comes up, but I am doing, um, Indiana out of state, but that's in November. And then next year I'm going to Iowa, but that's, again, that's a November hunt, but sometime in the next five years, I'd like to get out of state all West. And, you know, in the busy season at the shop, I guess. Okay. Well, um, we're definitely going to be following along with you, um, to, to see, and, and we'll have to catch up after the season and, and kind of get maybe more into some of the hunts and, and how it went for you, uh, this year where, so what shop again, is it that you work at? Like, how can people get a hold of you if they need bow work done or, or any of that stuff? I'm at Sunrise Archery in Fenton, Michigan. Uh, we're over in Genesee County, right off of 20, US 23, exit 80. Uh, phone number is 810-936-0066. Uh, we're there six days a week. Um, we're closed on Sundays. Otherwise, we're pretty much there other than holidays, you know, all year round. 10 to 6 during the week, 10 to 4 on Saturday. 
and uh like as far as like social media or if anybody wants to follow along with you or the shop um where can they do that yeah we're on facebook and instagram just sunrise archery we do have a website sunrisearchery.com my wife actually runs all of our social media for the last three and a half years or so that's been a big help for us we've had a big big increase in awesome awesome well just thank you again for coming on tonight and uh, appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with me yeah thanks for having me yeah no problem